Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Deidre Keller, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at Ohio Northern University Pettit College of Law. We will discuss her current project, Will I Be the Next, next Hashtag, Black Death Spectacle or Catalyst for Change. So welcome to the podcast, Deidre. Thank you for having me, Brian. Uh, I'm the pleasure is all here. mine. Yeah, I'm I'm sorry we weren't able to record you while you were in in Lexington, but I'm glad I was able to get you on on the podcast remotely. Um so I I read your abstract and found it really fascinating and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about the project. And I was wondering maybe if you could start off by just kind of familiarizing listeners with the two stories that you include in your abstract. Uh, itself. So you talk about both Jordan Edwards and and Emmett Till. And I was wondering if you, if you could tell our listeners who those people are and how they fit into the project that you're working on. Sure, absolutely. So Jordan Edwards, um, the more recent figure, Jordan Edwards was uh, killed by Balch Springs police officer in April of 2017. He was 15 years old. um, And he was killed when the car that he was driving in, the officer shot into the car. Um, Mm -hmm. A number of other teenagers were in the car with him. The officers, including his brother, uh, the officers had been called to the scene for a report of underage drinking. And initially, the report out of the police um, out of Balch Springs police was that the car was advancing towards the officer. And that's why he, um, he shot into the car, but there was uh, video footage to the contrary. And pretty soon after, um, uh, Jordan was killed, the Balch Springs police had to walk that back and ultimately, the officer who killed him was arrested and charged with murder. So that is the Jordan Edwards. Those are the facts around Jordan Edwards. Um, right. So a really sad and sadly all too common these days story. Yeah. And um, Emmett Till was also, uh, I think Emmett Till was 15 at the time that he died. Um He's definitely a young teenager. He was uh, growing up in Chicago. His mother sent him home uh, to Mississippi for where her family was from for the summer. And so he was home with family. And the allegation was that he whistled at a white woman. Her husband and uh, other members of her family showed up at his family's house, drug him out of the house, and killed him. Uh, This was in the 1950s, and um, Emma Till's mother, Mamie Till, made the decision to have her son's casket be open at his funeral. And she invited members of the press, especially uh, the black press, to come take pictures. And so the pictures of Emmett Till's badly mangled body are pervasive um, 
and are credited with being part of what was motivating in terms of people uh, getting starting off the civil rights movement. So right. those are those are the the two figures. They came together for me because I had been thinking about the intersections of intellectual property and privacy when Jordan Edwards was killed. So I, I have this that paper, um, Copyright to the Rescue, at the UCLA Journal, Journal of Law and Technology. And um, so I had been thinking about how copyright intersects with privacy, how privacy and the right of publicity are related to each other. I had been thinking about those questions. Um, uh-huh. And then Jordan Edwards was killed. And pretty immediately after that, his family said, that they did not want his name hashtagged, right? So mm-hmm. in the months before that, really the years before that, lots of other um, folks killed by police or in encounters with police or even with uh, what I'll call vigilantes had been, you know, so hashtag Trayvon Martin, um, hashtag Jordan Davis, Sandra Bland, right? A number of other folks had been uh, sort of, on social media, the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement was sort of using their names for, to make the case, right, for mm-hmm. more attention to be paid to these issues. And his family said pretty quickly, you know, we don't want to martyr our son. Um, and so my, my brain said, well, what do families do? What could a family do in a scenario like that? where they don't want their child, their now dead child's um, name or image used, right, without their permission. Uh, And of course, you know, the tools that we have at our disposal are the right to privacy as lawyers and Mm -hmm. right of publicity. And so that got me thinking about whether those tools could actually be effective um, in in a scenario like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Emmett Till then came back into my thinking about this question because Dana Schutz, uh, a painting by Dana Schutz was hanging at the Whitney um, and the painting was, the subject matter of the painting was one of those uh, really iconic images of Emmett Till's badly mangled body. Mm-hmm. And at the time that the Whitney was displaying that painting, um, a black artist showed up to protest against the display of the painting. And so that's actually where the the black death spectacle comes from in the title. Um, Mm. The artist protesting made the argument that uh, Dana Schutz's representation of Till and the Whitney's display of it was making a spectacle of of black death. Mm. And so that made me think again about this idea of sort of unauthorized uses of the names and likenesses of folks killed, uh, especially black children killed by police or in Emmett Till's case by, by vigilantes. Um, and so the Dana Schutz uh, question protest 
had me thinking about the same questions, right? Are the right of publicity, the right to privacy, are they up to protecting against those kinds of unauthorized uses? Which mm-hmm. is really sort of a doctrinal question, right? So that's the road that I went down first, the doctrinal road. Um, but I then started working on um, an edited collection out of a conference that I did, uh, that I put together with Anjali Voss and Jessica Silby um, and uh, Amit Basol at Boston College in April of 2017, uh, at the, which was about race and IP, right? Mm. So sort of bringing critical race theory to bear on intellectual property questions in a way that hasn't really been done um, substantively. Um, and so that's sort of how I ended up at asking the more normative question, right? Should that kind of protection exist? Right. Sort of where this paper is. The this right. piece is at the at the normative side of the question, right? Should we protect mm-hmm. um the the privacy of families who find themselves in these really difficult circumstances of having lost a child? Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that should question is really important because at the end of the day, it's what really matters, right? <laughs> I mean, what's really at stake here is, you know, how should we as a society think about people's feelings and um, experiences in these kinds of contexts? And, you know, that seems like it's not an easy question to answer. Right. So the mom in me is like, absolutely, we should, right? Um, the fact of the matter is that I'm the mother of five boys and black wow. boys. And so this is, this is close to home in that sense. Mm. Um, mm. And of course I would want privacy if my child were killed in some, in some violent mm-hmm. way. Right. Um, the flip side of that is that there is, lots of good historical work around um, the effectiveness of those Emmett Till photographs, right? And the other photographs and imagery that came out of the civil rights movement. Um, We can all think of those pictures of dogs attacking protesters and uh, the police spraying protesters with fire hoses, right? Those images are are iconic because they really were effective and utilized strategically by the movement to change the narrative, right, around racial justice. And so I see that side of it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the project in the book chapter is to think through those sort of competing interests um, mm. and try to come up with an answer to that that should question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really does seem like you've got this question of whether people should be able to prevent the symbolic use of a murdered person, you know, even if that use may have positive social sort of a positive social effect. And then it seems like the Dana Schutz situation that you mentioned 
introduces kind of a parallel question, which is like, who should be able to prevent or who should have the sort of social, sort of social right to object to particular kinds of uses? Right. Yeah. So in the Jordan Edwards case, it's, it's really simple, right? It's pretty straightforward. It's his family. If anyone should have that right, it's his family, right? Um, mm-hmm. His parents, if you will. And uh, there's, there's some really, you know, there are some easy parallels there um, around privacy and parenting, right? And so there are some easy legal parallels that we can draw. Um, Dana Schutz's mm. question is, is much more complicated because the protest would not buy specifically Emmett Till's family, right? Um, yeah. Although I will say that the I, I'm aware of the fact that, for example, the Emmett Till display at the Smithsonian, uh, at the African American Museum, um, you cannot take pictures there. It's one of the only places in the museum that you mm. can't take pictures. And my sense mm. is that that is that actually is um, in respect for the wishes of his family. So, so mm. I think that there is. It's not clear to me. Uh, that Emmett Till's family, the remaining members of his family, are not um, troubled by or would not like some ability to control the uses of his image mm-hmm. and the like. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have any sense about how the members of Emmett Till's family, other than his mother, felt about that in I the moment? I don't. I don't. Um, there isn't. There's so much interesting writing about uh, Mamie Till and her decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's really sort of lauded for that decision, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I get that. But I also, no, I mean, it's, it was a hugely important moment. But at the same time, mm-hmm. um, one wonders whether had she chosen the opposite tact, right? whether that had mm-hmm. been a respected choice. Um, and, and the question there for me is a question about sort of, you know, the norms around grieving, for example, right? So even very famous people um, who, it, when they have sick children or, or their child is, is killed or dies even, um, we as a society sort of grant that that is a private moment, you know, um, even if you're someone who has opted to be in the public eye. And of course, these families mm-hmm. are not opting to be in the public eye, right? They're sort of thrust there. And then, and then they have to deal with it. And so to me, the question is, <clears throat> you know, some of us are not Mamie Till. And, and we should get yeah. to be not Mamie Till, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the so so sort of the counterexample to Jordan Edwards for me is Jordan Davis, who, it, do you know the Jordan Davis story? No, okay, so no, Jordan Davis was uh, killed in Florida because, well, he was at a gas station and someone told him, 
that he was playing his music, that they were playing their music too loud. He, again, he was with a bunch of other teenagers. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have, yeah. Right. So he sh- shot into the car, killed Jordan Davis. Um, and his mother, Jordan Davis's mother is now a congresswoman elect in, in Georgia. So yeah, so oh, wow. she has been very publicly um, out. Her her sort of signature issue is uh, gun reform, gun control, and mm-hmm. um, and so she just won in Georgia on a gun gun control platform. <laughs> so that's right. That's no wow. small feat. Um, and so I say that to say we have a number of examples, right of of mothers of black boys killed doing something with that politically. Um, and I think that's, that's all fine. The question is, can you make the other choice, right? Is it allowable? Is there, is there space? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, from a doctrinal standpoint, I mean, it, it's not really my area per se, but it seems like the right, to privacy would be the most kind of obvious route, but it seems like there are potential problems there insofar as, yeah. insofar as these, these murders are so public and so newsworthy, do you think that the right to privacy as it stands is up to the task or do we need to think more differently about how the right to privacy should work in a sort of social media connected hashtag world. So I don't think the right to privacy is up to the task because before we even get to uh, the question of the news of newsworthiness, we have to deal with the fact that the right to privacy has by and large uh, been denied to people who are deceased. So, right. Of course. Once you are deceased, you have no right to privacy. Um, which is really interesting, right? When you think about uh, this is this is why folks use copyright to get around that problem, mm-hmm. right? So when you think about like, um, oh gosh, I'm uh, I'm trying to think of the the famous author whose uh, estate has blocked the use of his letter. No, not Salinger. You thinking of? Oh, it's it's going to come to me, but so. Um, yeah, so what estates do is they use copyright to get around it, right? And they say, oh, we have a, there's mm-hmm. a copyright in these letters between, you know, our father and, and our sister. And so you can't write, you mm-hmm. can't make reference to the letters. They don't really care about the copyright. They care about the privacy, right? And so, right, um, right. so no, privacy won't get us there. The right to privacy won't get us there, which is what got me marching down the right of publicity road because right of publicity mm-hmm. does in many places continue after death. So mm-hmm. now that's not true in New York, although there is a continuous push to move to fix that in New York. Um, but in most places in California, certainly uh, in Georgia, um, the rights of private or the right of publicity is recognized as existing after there's a postmortem right, in other words. And so that's what got me sort sort of moving mm. in that direction and thinking about uh, the salience of the right of publicity doctrine mm-hmm. for this. 
you run into the same yeah. newsworthiness problem, right? So, right. and then what right. do you do with that? Right. What? Yeah. Well, it also seems like there's sort of a, a normative or structural tension in thinking about the right to publicity in those terms, because it's, well, at least typically conceptualized in such sort of economic right. sort of internalizing positive externalities yep. sort of way. And that's just really from, 180 degrees yeah, so from that, what's going the on here. The upside is that the right of privacy, the right to privacy and the right of publicity are really sort of historically deeply connected, right? So if you go back to mm. where the right to privacy came from, I don't mean normatively, I mean in our law, right? Where did it come from? Um, mm-hmm. There's that 1890 Warren and Brandeis Law Review article, Harvard Harvard Law Journal, sure. um, in which they make the argument that we should recognize a standalone right to privacy, right? But at the time that they were making that argument, literally no mm-hmm. court of last instance had ever done that. Ever. So they make the argument And then it's 15 years before a court of last instance does it. And it's in a case called Povesich. Um, And what's interesting about that case is today we would call that a right of publicity case. So it's a case about Mm -hmm. the use of a photograph in connection with an advertisement for insurance. So, you know, skip forward (laughs) you know, a hundred years and or 120 years. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't make that claim as a right to privacy claim anymore. Right. You would make it as a right of publicity claim Mm. today. Um, But at the time, that's how deeply connected these things were. Right. First statute Mm -hmm. protecting Mm -hmm. the right to privacy, which is the New York statute, which remains, uh, pretty much the statute that was adopted in the early 20th century um, that also is mm. has ingrained in it a misappropriation claim, what we would today call a right of publicity, mm. right? So these things are right. not that distinct from each other, at least as a historical matter. Um, and so that's why you'll see the right of publicity sort of embedded in privacy statutes in various places, like here in Ohio. Uh, if you go look at our privacy statute here in Ohio, one of the things that you cannot do is misappropriate for commercial purposes. The name likeness, that's right of publicity, mm-hmm. right? So teasing right. them apart yep. isn't all that simple, but you're absolutely right about the economic aspect of the rights publicity. Um And part of what, part of the tension there, part of the difficulty in deploying the right of publicity in the kinds of fact situations that concern me in this piece is that these families don't want money, right? They don't want to be compensated. They don't want, that's not what they want. Mm -hmm. They want you to not use their family member's name or likeness. Right. They want to have some control, in other words, over the use Mm -hmm. of their family members name or likeness. And the right of publicity really doesn't usually do that. 
right? It doesn't usually allow for the kind of remedy mm-hmm. that families like Jordan Edwards' family would want. And so that, that begs the question of, so if we leave to the side for the moment, should protection like this exist? Uh, we have to ask the question of, if it did exist, what would it look like, right? How do we model it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder, Deidre, I mean, do you, do you think this kind of long-standing privacy publicity dialectic is the right way to think about the kind of social goals that we actually want to achieve or does the work you're doing now suggest maybe we ought to think about the whole problem? I do think, um well, so that's interesting. That's an interesting question. How else might we think of this problem? Right? Um, what other kinds of causes of action could we imagine, right? Um, so the, mm-hmm. the, you know, is there a tort claim here? Is there a, some kind of pro- property interest, right? Like what is this thing? What, what doctrinal paradigm would exist to vindicate the kinds of harms that a grieving family might face if they don't have any control over the use of their their deceased family member's name or image, right? Um, I can't think of other mechanisms, right, that might be available Mm -hmm. to families like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if we don't need to think kind of in a new paradigm or think in a new way about what we want to achieve. I mean, because it seems like the sort of social circumstances and technologies of communication have radically changed who becomes a symbol in a way that can kind of grab and use people who wouldn't historically necessarily have been, you know, in the position for that to have happened without someone like Emmett Till's mother, you know, sort of choosing right. to make Absolutely. a symbol so out of her I son. thought about that, right? Because the, the difference between Mamie Till and Jordan Davis's family is actually really a, a simple one. And that is, it's actually sort of a property difference, right? The photographers that took the photos of Emmett Till had to be invited there by Mamie Till, right? Mm -hmm. And so to get access Mm -hmm. um, to Emmett Till's body, to the thing that became the symbol, they had to have her permission. They were effectively her licensees. Right. Um, this mm. is the world mm. has moved on from that because we have social media. But even on the access question, the world has moved on from that. Right. Because how do these how do these victims names end up before the hashtag? How are they out in the public? Well, they're out in the public because the police makes a report. Right. The Balch Springs police releases the name. And actually, very often, 
the police will release the name of the victim long before they release the name of the police officer who did the shooting. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what happens in the period between when the victim's name is released and when the shooter's name is released is that the media goes looking for whatever reason justification might exist for the police to kill this person. Right. And so that's why you see stories like, mm-hmm. you know, the way that Tamir Rice's mother was characterized in the media. Uh, she had a record and she was on public assistance and none of these were justifications for shooting mm-hmm. a 12 year old child in a park. Right. Uh, and yet yeah. that's exactly what right. happened. And after Tamir Rice was killed, it was a while before we knew the name of the officer who killed him. And so mm-hmm. in this world where the information is being disseminated, right, widely without any real controls by the family, it seems like we really do need to think a lot more deeply about how we might protect where access was the protective mechanism, like just the reality of not having access 50 years ago, 60 years ago. Right. Um, So Mm. the one thing that the one sort of analogous uh, kind of law stuff that comes to mind is the way that we treat um, names of victims of sexual violence, right? So uh, rape shield laws and the like. And part of the reason that that comes to mind as a potential model for me is because the motivation for rape shield laws is not all that distinct, right, from the mo- my motivation for wanting some protection here, right? And that is exactly yeah. the same. I mean, yeah. before rape shield laws, the same kinds of narratives, right? Well, what did this person do? Where were you? Were you drinking? What were you wearing? Like all of those narratives were in the media, right? Around victims of sexual violence. Um, and so there was a, a, a very similar sort of narrative trajectory, right? The name of the victim was released to the media and the media went looking for justifications for why this particular person was the victim of sexual violence. Um, that's a, a very similar kind of problem. And so I think that there, there's some analogies there, right? And so maybe the framework model for thinking about how the kind of protection I'm wishing for here might come about is to model on those kinds of rape shields. Yeah. 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 Well, at the very least, it seems like the private victim's privacy should receive at least as much protection as the police officers. Exactly. But so the, the thing is that 
on the police officer side, they have a ton of protection, right? By way of not just by sort of what this is how we do things, but also like actual protection. So that very often um, their union contracts articulate specifically, right? What has to happen before their name is released in a shooting. You know what I mean? So there is protection there. There's a reason that we hear the name of the victim way before we hear, mm-hmm. hear the name of the police officer. And that reason is that the police officer has, you know, sort of private law protection um, where you would think that that should be exactly reversed, right? The private citizen should have some private law protection, certainly as much as, as the, the public servant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I imagine the primary pushback against this, this sort of new way of, or new approach or way of thinking about what the privacy of a victim or the victim's family ought to look like would be people raising like first amendment type objections, which seem pretty unsatisfying to me, honestly, but I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you would frame First Amendment values. Yeah, so um, the First Amendment stuff context. is a quagmire um, for a number of reasons. The, you know, for First Amendment purists, will hate this. Um, I mean, that's I. I just have to get sort of comfy with <laughs> with that idea. Um, there's there's a book out recently that I'm not going to remember the author of now. Uh, that's called What's Wrong with the First Amendment. And it's about this, right? Mm. It's about this sort of um, notion that the First Amendment is sacrosanct. You can never, there are no limitations on it. Of course, we know that's not right. That can't be right, right? And so I would say that the First Amendment yields to all sorts of things all the time, right? Uh, the book is by uh, Stephen Schifrin. So, yeah. Um, uh, right. So the First Amendment yields to all sorts of things all the time, right? The First Amendment yields to copyright very often, as you know. Um, and so, yep. you know, this notion that the First Amendment that we can't sort of over and and in fact in this even in these scenarios the first amendment is yielding to the private law contractual you know union rights of police officers right so even in this context the first amendment there's give there right um and so that's that's sort of my gut reaction to it but even having said that uh the the relationship between privacy and the First Amendment is itself like deeply complicated um, because, of course, we all know sort of the newsworthiness stuff, but privacy and the First Amendment intersect with and, you know, um, frustrate each other <laughs> in lots of other ways as well. So there is, you know, there's that that line of cases about how um, you can't, let's say, uh, go knock on someone's door and, and try to, if they ask you to leave, basically you have to leave, even if you have a political message, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that is, of course, privacy winning over the First Amendment, right? And it's not, it's not constitutional privacy, right? Because for constitutional privacy, we need some government, some state action. Um, it's tort-type privacy, right? Invasion of a private sphere, it's that kind of privacy. And yet, constitutional right, mm -hmm. the highest protection-type constitutional right First Amendment right is yielding to, to privacy there, right? To tort-type privacy. And that's really interesting. Um, and the way that that gets framed in, in the discourse, in the literature, is there is a constitutional aspect to that kind of privacy, right? And the constitutional aspect is, just as I have the right to speak, I have the right not to speak. And just as I have the right to listen, I have the right not to listen, mm -hmm. right? So I don't, I'm not always, I'm not necessarily convinced <laughs> by that infusion of constitutional um, rhetoric, but I, I, I raise it to say that if we impose a privacy right here, despite the First Amendment, it won't be the first time that the First Amendment is yielding to privacy concerns, right? So the question is just yeah. whether there's a justification, right, to have the First Amendment yield to privacy concerns in this context, just as there is a justification to have the First Amendment yield to privacy concerns when I don't want to listen to, you know, whoever's political speech on my doorstep, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, the First Amendment isn't and shouldn't be just a trump card. It's, you know, it is itself expressive of values. And I, it seems to me that you're you're really highlighting the fact that, you know, when somebody asserts a First Amendment value, you have to put it up against the competing values that it's yes. demanding should And yield. so interestingly, um, I think the First Amendment, or I think the First Amendment yields to copyright too often, right? And so, <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. I do. It's sort of absurd <laughs> to me uh, how much room we give copyright relative to First Amendment concerns. And, and I've written about that question as well. Um, so I am for sure not saying in all instances the First Amendment should yield, right? I definitely think that it's exactly what you said. We have to always be doing this balancing, right? Of, okay, we have a First Amendment value at issue here. What is the competing concern? What is the competing value? And, um, and I, think, I think I can make the argument that the competing value here is, is a dignity interest, right, in having the space yeah. to grieve um, in the way that, that the family sees fit. And so, I mean, I think that there's a good amount of, um, there are good examples in our law for sort of respect for the dead and respect for people's grieving processes that we sh I should be able to make that argument. Yeah, 
Yeah, that sounds that sounds right to me as well. Well, Deirdre, this has been a great conversation, and your 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 project just sounds really fascinating and timely. And I I look forward to reading Thank it you, when Brian. when you have a draft ready. Send it your way. This is Dolan Ellis. I hope you've enjoyed sharing these songs with us. The folks at Western Savings sure have enjoyed preparing this special album just for you. And I guess that's because the people at Western not only appreciate having you for a customer, they also love this great state of Arizona as much as I do. You know, since 1929, Western Savings has been growing right along with this whole big state. And they realize what it means to be Arizona's largest savings and loan. For now, and until we meet again, adios.